0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Matthew 12, 24 through 45.
1: I wish you could all be up here where I am watching you watch that video. There are parts like, yeah, yeah, oh no, oh my, really? Brood of vipers? So it's fun to watch you respond. Let's have this text open because we're gonna be walking through this powerful passage. If you are with us for the first time, Uh, During this Matthew series, let me tell you where we're going and why we're studying Matthew. First of all, it's the inspired word of God, and it reveals to us Jesus. And the thing that we're calling this series Kingdom Come is because we're realizing that we're learning about the king and the kingdom. There are passages that tell us about Jesus, and by learning about Jesus, we learn about his kingdom. There's passages that we're going to encounter that tell us about the kingdom of God, and by that, we learn about the king. They're, They're inseparable. It's important that we never disconnect them. Because Jesus came with a purpose to reveal himself and his father to us and to reveal the kingdom by which we're invited. So let me catch you up quick on a few weeks that you missed. In chapter one, we learn that he's the promised Messiah, that Jesus was no accident. He comes from the tribe of David. When David was promised that there would be a king that would come from him that would eternally reign, Jesus was the answer. Chapter two, he's the great deliverer that takes us out of enslavement to sin. Chapter 3, he's the authoritative judge who will judge the hearts of every man and woman and he will do it accurately and he will do it with grace and mercy. He's the obedient son, chapter 4, tempted by all the temptations of sin, yet not giving in and keeping his heart focused on God's desires foremost. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's the authoritative teacher and healer. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, He's the caring Savior, meeting the needs of people in whatever condition they were and offering them something greater, not just healing, but offering them His kingdom. Today, we get into chapter 12. And as we're going through this, not covering every chapter, but seeing the themes that Matthew gives us that tells us about the King and the kingdom, today we're going to learn that Jesus is the power of God. He Himself is the power of God displayed. The more we learn about Jesus, the more we know God. The more we know God, the more we love Jesus, and we can see this all coming together. Well, we begin in verse twenty-two, and in one of those provocative passages of Scripture, as you just heard, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished, and they said, "Could this be the Son of David?" But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, "This is only Beelzebub, the prince of demons." that this fellow drives out demons. Interesting. See, this healing caused the crowd to act. Now remember, the crowd was uneducated, common folk, blue collar people. They trusted the Pharisees and the religious leaders to teach them. Literacy would have been 50-50 maybe, whether they could read or even had access to scriptures outside of the synagogue. They were totally reliant on these educated teachers, the, the elite, if you will, to instruct them. And they see Jesus take this demon-possessed man who could not see or speak. And when Jesus is done with him, the demon's gone. He can see and speak. And they deduce this on their own. They look at each other and go, it's got to be the Messiah. We've heard what he's going to do. And everything they say the Messiah is going to do, this guy keeps doing. Is he the son of David? And the, the religious elite, the upper educated, they see this moment and they become furious. This is an outlandish accusation they make. They conclude that he can't be the Messiah because we don't want him to be. If he's the Messiah doing things this way, then he's not doing it our way. And if he's not doing it our way, then we don't want him. And they proclaim he's doing it by Satan. Satan's the one giving him the power to do this. We get to verse 25. It is one of those verses when I was a young man reading the Bible for the first time by myself, a common mistake. I'm going to read the Bible by myself, and I'm going to try to discover its truth outside of community. It's a dangerous thing. <clears throat> and I remember being 12 or 13 and deciding I needed to read through the Bible and do this for myself. And I would read the first four words of verse 25, and Jesus knew their thoughts. And my heart would go, ugh. Have you had, ever had anybody accuse you of doing something and you didn't do it? And you're like, I would never. But have you also had a moment where someone accused you of something You actually did and you still responded with, I would not not often, right? When people know your heart, it's really disturbing. You're vulnerable, you feel unprotected. It said Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Jesus is so brilliant. I don't say that enough. I think it often when I read my scriptures, Jesus is no dummy. He's not elite in that he feels superior. Jesus just uses logic so well, and he turns and he responds to them. He said, why would the devil stop himself? Why would he prevent the work he's trying to do from happening? It's a ridiculous claim you're making. In other words, you know better. He said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and we know this historically. When it's split down the middle, nothing gets accomplished. And then Jesus confronts their rationale in verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Yikes. Now, this is where the junior high kids in the audience would be like, ooh, snap, right? Because Jesus just took these people out at their feet and they're laying on their faces and he's like, huh. So when I do it, it's by, when I do it, it's by Satan, but when you all cast out demons as l- religious leaders under the authority of God, yours is a different source? Well, it's a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it. Jesus said your conclusions are inconsistent. And not only are your conclusions inconsistent, you know they are. Jesus does not tolerate when truth is twisted so that it is no longer true. Or when truth is prevented from being told because it causes or costs somebody something. So he said, so when you cast out demons, you do it the right way. Okay, interesting. Verse 28. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, because the answer is obviously it wasn't Satan, but if the way I do it is by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is another big, big statement by Jesus. For, the, for many people who like to say, well, Jesus never really said he was God, pay attention because he does, and he does it subtly at times because of his audience, But he says, if it's not by Satan that demons are cast out, then it must be at the kingdom of God as promised in scripture. And if that's true, then the kingdom of God is right in front of you. You know the evidence. You see the evidence. Verse 29. He then says again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house? Jesus does something brilliant again. He calls him a strong man. In our culture today, we dismiss spiritual power and authority as if it's one of those things that those ignorant people back in the dark days needed to know so it made sense to them, kind of a word picture. But I want you to know Jesus, for a second, didn't play people to be fools, and Jesus believes in spiritual power and darkness, so we might ought to. So in this moment, he says to them, a strong man, you don't walk in a strong man's house and steal his television. You don't go take his coins or his collectibles. If you're going to go in his house and you get caught, you're going to have to bind him. And we think, of course, that's his logical sense. If you're going to break into someone's house, you don't want them home. And if they're home, you got to tie them up to take their stuff. And if you're thinking about breaking into a home, stop it, right? (laughs) So anyway, the illustration works. So we have this moment where Jesus said he ties them up. Now listen to what he said, though. To his audience that day, Jesus said, when I cast the demon out of that man, I just tied the strong man up before your eyes. I did this against Satan's will. It was not his will. This wasn't by his power, it was against his power. And Jesus said, "So pay attention, when the strong man gets bound up, it means a stronger man is here. He's just declared the power of his kingdom. And if the signs of the Messiah are here, then the Messiah must be here. So basically, end of lecture, everyone go home. Then in verse 30, Jesus extends it. And this has been a reoccurring theme I've been introducing through this entire series. It's only because it was introduced to me and it was necessary for me to make this transition. Last week I told you that the majority of Matthew's teaching up to a certain point was about who Jesus is. Now now Matthew is entering in chapter 10 going forward that he begins to introduce, because we know who Jesus is, it requires something of us. If you're living in a world that says, all I have to do is believe in Jesus, that's all that's required of me, I don't believe you've accurately understood Scripture. If Jesus is who he says he is, let's just put it this way. If he is evil, we should oppose him with every fiber of our body. But if he's the Messiah, we should give him every piece of who we are. In other words, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you've ever wondered if Jesus has drawn a line in the sand to say that faith is demonstrable, that faith is not a thought, faith is a response, then you need to look at verse 30 of Matthew 12. Because Jesus was saying to these religious leaders, you are either propelling people out of my kingdom and keeping them from it, or you're inviting them in. There is no middle ground. And for many of us, if we're honest, I know I struggle with this, so I'm assuming you all do. Sorry if that is unfair but I think it's human nature and right human nature is undefeated most of us want to play one side in the middle we I'll lean toward Jesus but I also want to be like in the world and I and, and I want to do well and I want to have friends and I I want to enjoy all these things as if you have to make these choices the truth is If we know who Jesus is, the Pharisees stood in the aisle deciding they didn't want to go that far with Jesus to call him the Messiah, and they certainly didn't like the crowd, the uneducated masses calling him the Messiah. So they decided to step in and say, no, 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 just wait this thing out. And Jesus said, you are either propelling people from my kingdom or you are calling them into my kingdom. Do not be mistaken. You have to choose. The same Spirit of God would say in the book of Revelation, I would rather you be Hot or cold than lukewarm, because if you're lukewarm, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. Pretty graphic imagery. So if Jesus is evil and he's not who he says he is, you should oppose him with every fiber of your being. But if he is who he's revealed himself to be, you should love him and serve him with every fiber of your being for the rest of your life. Because Jesus is the power of God on display. But the power of God will not be ignored. Verse 31. But so I also tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, to understand any passage of Scripture It does not serve us well to pull one scripture out of the Bible and make that some trophy that proves our point. That passage of scripture is understood in the complexity of all scripture. So if you believe something about God, but other passages refute that and tell you that that's not who God is, then your first understanding of that scripture is incorrect. We let the Bible teach us what the Bible means. So when Jesus presents this vision that you have to be with me, or against me, and that there are sins that can be forgiven and sins that will not be forgiven, we need to pause and go, is our understanding of this text consistent in scripture? For instance, look at Exodus 34:6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Does that sound like your God? Because that sounds like my God. Does that sound like the God of scripture? absolutely so how can we have this God who's loving and kind and compassionate and he's patient with us and he understands that we're learning how to follow him and trust him and he allows our faith to sell remember he says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed you can move mountains he's not mocking them he's saying any faith will change your life so go for it trust it let it grow And the beauty of all this, when we see through scripture, we're understanding that the world needs to hear of the goodness of our God, but it also needs to hear the truth that that because of his goodness, he deserves our worship. He deserves our trust. Dare I say, God has earned your loyalty. We withhold it. We choose to not see what he's doing And Jesus said, you need to understand there comes moments in life where you have to make a choice about your allegiance to God or your allegiance to the world, but do not be mistaken the implications of those choices. So God is kind and God is good and God is generous. God is patient. God is forgiving. And yet Jesus comes and says, but there are moments where the forgiveness of God may not be available to you. And this startles us especially in the American church where we believe that all I have to do is make a confession of Jesus at one point in my life, and that must mean that he owes me heaven. He owes us nothing. He invites us in when we're unworthy and broken, and what brings us into the kingdom is only the mercy and grace of God. It's not anything we're worthy of. So in the midst of this, what kind of loyalty does that king deserve? Not a temporary or a one-time loyalty, but a daily loyalty, you see, these religious leaders knew what the Messiah was to be. Yes, they wanted him to be a military power that took out Rome and ended suppression. That wasn't a bad desire. And they believed that this is what it was going to be. And then God revealed Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah, yet nothing that God prophesied about him was untrue. And they, they rejected it. And not only did they reject it, they were keeping other people from trusting Jesus. And Jesus said, I will not tolerate this. And then Jesus says two startling things. I want to point these out. The first one I've missed for the majority of my ministry, and I don't know how I missed it, but I did. The second one's the one we all focus on. But the first thing that I think is startling is that Jesus says, blasphemy against him is forgivable. Because... In this context, they didn't know who Jesus was completely. He was showing them signs to reveal himself, but Jesus knew a greater sign was coming. And at that moment in time, this discussion would end. But he said, I am going to forgive you for not getting me. Peter, James, John, did they fully get Jesus and understand who they were dealing with? No. Did Jesus say, well, then you're out? No, Jesus is compassionate and kind and forgiving. So Jesus says this startling statement. So let's play this little pop quiz because I know how much you all love pop quizzes in church, right? So did Peter ever deny Jesus? Was he forgiven? Yeah. Did the apostle Paul ever deny who Jesus was and his power? Absolutely. Remember in the book of Acts, he's going down the road and Jesus shows up and says, really, you're a big man. He drops him to his knees, he makes him blind. Paul, Paul's like, Lord, right? Because you'd do that too. And Jesus said, why are you fighting against me? Paul had never fought against Jesus. Paul was persecuting the church. And Jesus goes, no, my church is me. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul stops. Or as the Bible would say, he repented. And was he forgiven? Absolutely. You see, Jesus understands that we are learning and growing in faith. And he is patient and kind. Our God is good, isn't he? Yet Jesus makes that startling statement. And when have we ever done this? Because I believe, whether you want to admit it or not, I, I assume we've all blasphemed against Jesus. What does it mean to blaspheme? It means to deny truth, to slander truth, to deny the work of something, to say something about God that is patently untrue and act as if it is and deny the truth of God. That's what it means to blaspheme. And Jesus said, yes, you're saying these things about me, but I am not taking this personal. I'm going to prove you wrong and call you to repentance. But then Jesus says the second startling statement. Blasphemy against the spirit of God is unforgivable. Now you know as a pastor, you can only assume what questions are always derived from this teaching. So Mark, have I ever done that? And I wanna caution you right now. If you're asking that question, you probably haven't. If you actually care about the answer, you probably haven't because you realize to blasphemy the unforgivable sin would mean that God couldn't forgive you. And if your soul cries out that you don't want that and you want to remedy that, then chances are you haven't crossed that line. Are there some that have? According to Jesus, yes. I'm not bright enough and it's not my role to decide out who they are. So we're having a conversation with us today. No one else but us. What does this mean? I believe it's simply put, the means to forgiveness is rejected. rejected. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to deny the call of the Holy Spirit on your life to repent of your sins and return to the loving Father who awaits your return. To accept the gift of Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross and the power of the resurrection. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to say you don't need it and because you don't need it, you don't want it and it's a refusal to surrender. It involves willful unbelief. It involves persistent rebellion. It's a denial of God's work. I tend to believe it's not a moment in time, it's a series of choices. To continually reject the truth that could set you free for your own method. So if I can say it simply this way, the religious leaders of Jesus were not rejecting Jesus because of a lack of evidence. They were rejecting Jesus because of a lack of humility. I wanna say that again. You know you're bordering on rejecting God when it's not for a lack of evidence. It's for a lack of humility. It's based on human pride. Well, I don't wanna be soft and I don't wanna be all that forgiving and, you know, and no one's gonna protect me and so I gotta take care of me. And you're rejecting the goodness and the provisions and the love of a God who came and died on the cross so that you might be set free. A freedom we never could derive on our own. In fact, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse three on the screen. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's powerful. Paul said it's the spirit that brings conviction. It's the spirit that seeks throughout the the world to find those that are broken by their sin and seeking the hope that can only be found in returning to the Father. So Jesus said, you can reject me because the evidence of me is not yet proven. In this moment that he delivered this message, but he said, but the Holy Spirit is showing you by the power of scripture and by the fulfillment of the prophecies, Jesus said that I'm doing the work of the Messiah and you're standing in the crowd and you're telling them and instructing them that I'm not who I say I am. And Jesus said, that becomes unforgivable because in your pride, you refuse to repent to the truth. See the difference though? It's more than an attitude or a single act. It's a willful rejection of truth. If I can oversimplify it, it's unforgivable, not because God won't forgive it. It's unforgivable because we won't repent of it. And unrepentant sin, willful, unrepentant rejection of Jesus Christ is the opposite of what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. So some wonder again, have I committed the unforgivable sin? I would tend to believe the fact that you would come here on a Sunday and that you would be open to the word of God and that right now your stomach's a little uneasy, I think you're going to be okay if you repent. If you choose loyalty to Jesus rather than loyalty to self or the world. It's because Jesus is the power of God and the power of God cannot be ignored. And the last point I want to make is that the power of God is here and has been displayed for all the world to see. In the moment in which Jesus says this, and Matthew records it, Jesus had not been fully revealed. He had slowly gone from a period of obscurity as this itinerant preacher that had this small group of followers that went from town to town, and do you remember that he would perform these miracles? Do you remember what he said almost every time after he performed a miracle? Don't tell anybody. He was waiting for the moment to go into Jerusalem and make his stand as the Passover lamb on the great Passover. And in that moment, Jesus would declare to the world who he was and they would kill him on the cross, never realizing they were fulfilling everything God had intended for this to be. And then in verse 38, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Stop. You just called him Satan. For casting a demon out of a blind mute guy. That blind mute guy went home and said to his wife, "Huh, oh, you look great today. She's like, what? You see me and talk? Amazing, right? How was your day? Fantastic. That guy walked away and they said, everybody, he's not the Messiah, he's Satan. And then had the audacity to approach him immediately and said, do a sign for us. Who are they for? It would seem they wanted Satan's work to prosper. Jesus answered them and Jesus wasn't playing. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And they repented, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. If you don't know the story of Jonah, you just missed one of the biggest burns in all of scripture. Jonah was told to go to a town called Nineveh and preach. Jonah chose not to go to Nineveh and preach because he hated them. He, you know why he didn't go preach the gospel? He even told God this. The reason I didn't go to Nineveh and preach when you told me to is because you would save them. What a terrible God, right? You would be nice to them. He wanted them to burn. He didn't care about them. So God did this thing, had a storm, threw them in the water belched up by a fish. He's like, okay, I'll go. He went, he preached. The Bible says 120,000 people and cattle were saved that day. You're preaching when the cows come forward, church. (laughs) I've been preaching for 35 years. I've never had, I've prayed about cats, but I've never had a cow come down and say, forgive me, right? So you have this moment where he preached in the power and he said, because Jonah, scarred by the fish, his demeanor changed, the power of the gospel, the entire a nation of Nineveh fell on their knees. They knew who the real God was. In that moment, Jesus said, and that nation will sit in judgment on those of you who know who I am and don't do anything with it. We don't like to see the sight of Jesus, but it's still true. Because he said, I've given you the evidence. I've showed you what God is doing and you're rejecting it. In fact, you're rejecting what you know to be true. That's blasphemy, is to deny the truth and say it's not true. And then he says, I'm going to show you a sign just like Jonah. And we all know what it is now, don't we? Crucified on the cross. Three days and three nights. You got to do your math a little strangely. Was it on a Thursday or was it on a Friday? Three days and three nights, Jesus says. He comes out of the tomb on a Sunday morning. We know that's the fact. He walks out and he says, okay, now you need to know who I am because the evidence is all you need. I am resurrected from the dead and you can be too if you place your loyalty in me. We need to choose. See, the resurrection would convince their hardened hearts. This is the challenge that he's, he's offering all of us. So, what do we do with this? Jesus stood in a moment. He said, I'm calling you to choose. So, that's what we need to do for ourselves. Each one of us must make a decision in regards to Jesus. That seems so basic, but it's so uncommon. Oh, you know, you're here, so you're for Jesus. Being for Jesus doesn't change anything. We need to make a decision. We need to get out of the aisle and pick a seat. Are we under the teaching of Jesus, which means the lordship of Jesus compels us by his love to trust him? Or are we still in the world looking at Jesus saying, great teacher, remember this. If Jesus is just a great teacher, he claimed to be God, he's a psychopath. Or he's God. And if he's God, he deserves our loyalty. Not out of fear of punishment but out of the goodness of a king who invites us into his kingdom. And the gates of the kingdom are open, which means not only are we allowed to go in, but you and I are allowed to go out and into the world, inviting others to join us in. We must make a decision about Jesus. Some of you said, I already have, preacher. Good, make it again today. It's not a one-time decision. It's an everyday decision. We awaken every day with this choice. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, or we wake up and say, today's about me. And here's the beauty of it. When you make your life about Jesus, you'll find out what real living is all about. And many of the things you're fear losing, you'll never miss because Jesus is more than enough. And each one of us must make a decision in regard to sin. It's a simple dichotomy. Sin will either harden our hearts away from God or God will harden our hearts away from sin. Sin will either harden your heart away from God and Jesus, or Jesus will soften your heart toward God and harden it toward sin. It's a choice we get to make. You see, it's very simple in scripture. Repent and be forgiven. And repentance is more than I'm sorry. Repentance is turning from the path you're on and following Jesus, which is called all of us from the very beginning. Follow me. Follow me. Look at what the church preached in Acts chapter three, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. When you hear a preacher like me stand up here, you know, bald head, my face gets red when I get passionate, spitting all over the front row and you're like, man, you've been waiting months to preach on repentance. Not just repentance. A repentance that's sorry you got caught is not what the Bible teaches It is a repentance that the love of God has been rejected, that the mercy of God has not been sought, that the goodness of the King has not been experienced. Because my scriptures say that when we repent and turn from sin, it softens our heart toward the King and there's a time of refreshment in Jesus. Or we harden our hearts toward God and it softens our heart toward sin. And I don't think there's a single person in this room who's ever been refreshed by sin. We're full of shame and filth, hiding, disguising, lying. The refreshment comes by making a choice about Jesus first so that we can make a proper choice about sin second. So this morning, whether you're a believer or you've never made that choice, for those of you who've never taken a knee and surrendered to Jesus Christ, we'd love to teach you about the time of refreshment that comes to know that all of your secrets are known by the Father and he's still inviting you home that all of your rejection and rebellion are true, and yet that father awaits for you to come back and return. And maybe you're someone who's been a believer for a while, but you realize you got out of your chair and now you're back in the aisle and you're trying to decide which kingdom you wanna follow, the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Jesus. I'm, I'm asking you today, this day, to choose. As for me and my house, we're gonna serve. And you get to choose. You see, there are tables in the back of the room and we have some people headed to those tables right now. You saw a young lady lead us this morning, a child whose heart understood sin and wants the love and relationship with Jesus. And that child led us today with her testimony, her confession, and her faith. Maybe for some of you, today's the day you make that first step You let your sins be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is not just a symbol. This is a act of faith. It is a marriage to Jesus of loyalty and allegiance so that he can refresh our souls and we can invite others into his kingdom. For some of us, you may need to be prayed with or encouraged. Maybe you have questions about your relationship with Jesus. Don't do it alone. Do it in community. Because Jesus stands up and says, I'm showing you who I am. Will you trust me? So in the next few moments, as we stand, as we pray together, as we consider one another in this room of people and people at home watching online, don't let this moment pass. It's not the end of the service. It's the beginning of the conversation. If we can help you this morning, feel free to go to the tables. We'd love to meet you there. We're in this together. Let's stand together and sing. Thanks again for checking
0: out this podcast.